You're listening to Profile Theatre On Air. I'm Josh Hecht, Artistic Director of Profile Theatre in Portland, Oregon. Profile Theatre is one of the oldest continuously running theatre companies in the state. We center our season around a featured playwright whose vision broadens our perspective on the world and deepens our collective compassion. Profile Theatre On Air is a new platform bringing you high-quality audio plays as well as interviews, community profiles, and feature stories. This month, we're bringing you our first offering, Claudia, a viral love story, written by nine astounding writers commissioned by Profile Theatre, including Hansel Jung, Hilary Bettis, Dan Kitroser, Harrison David Rivers, Christopher Oscar Pena, Jason Grote, Philip Dawkins, E.M. Lewis, and Anna Ziegler, off of a playwriting prompt by Profile's featured writer, Pulitzer Prize winner Paula Vogel. Stay tuned after the episode for a conversation with theater historian Daniel Pollack-Pelsner about the play, these playwrights, and the impact of Paula Vogel's work on the American theater. And now, here's episode five of Claudia, a viral love story. Scene nine is by Anna Ziegler. Nine, Ming Sha and Momo. A new day, undeniably spring. Momo waits anxiously at her late grandfather's fish stall in the market in Wuhan. She's getting increasingly annoyed. Then, suddenly, her mother Ming Sha appears, a little out of breath and even more deeply out of character, wearing running clothes. There you are. What took you so long? And what are you wearing? This is what I believe is called athletic wear. I know what it is, but why are you wearing it? I'm sorry I'm late. I had a lot to do. Too much to do. And you're not wearing your mask. You need to wear your mask, Mom. It's right here in my hand. Well, it's no, not much use in your hand, is it? There was no one around, I thought. And I thought you'd been working on the stall for days. But there's nothing here. It's empty. No tables, no shelves, no chairs, no fish. I've actually been working very hard. Momo. What is it? It's just... It's good to see you. To see your face. Or part of it. Well, it's the same face as always. No, it's not. Okay, let's just focus. I mean, I'm here now, and I can't... So, what do you need me to do? Oh, I don't need you to do anything. Well, I can help set up the stall, at least. No, no, don't worry about that. But it's empty. It's fuller than it's ever been, actually. Um, have you been sleeping, Mom? Have you been eating? You look thin, you look... I feel good, as a matter of fact. You're in mourning. But I'm okay. I'm not sad. Because I have a plan. And when people have plans, they're not very sad, I think. Gong Gong is gone. I mean, I still can't. Lots of people are gone, sweetheart. So many have died. It almost makes a joke of death how many have left us. I don't understand. You, my traveling daughter who has seen the world, doesn't understand? How can that be? 
How was it, by the way, the world? Big. At least the airport in Tehran was very big. I never actually, I never got past the airport. And I didn't even see all of it. Most of it was closed. I stayed at the one open airport hotel for three days and three nights and didn't leave my room. We had very nice sheets and very small bottles of shampoo. And I took a lot of showers and then I'd lie down on the damp sheets and when I woke up, they were always dry and I'd have no idea what time it was. On my last morning, I went to a cafe in the airport and a woman there told me not to worry about the flu. Just a flu, she said. People die was what she meant. This is nothing new or important. But all I could think of was Gong Gong slumped in the hallway and no one to hold him, to touch him. Not just a flu was all I could think. No one to consider his body, to make it matter. No, this is history, I wanted to tell her. We will remember this. The world, it will remember this. But I didn't have the words. We didn't have the language. She told me, not to tell anyone I was Chinese, which is when I checked my pocketbook, twice for luck, to make sure my passport was still there. My passport, which was my way home. And then I got on a flight back to China because I am Chinese. My body is Chinese and also it is human. And I'm sorry, but people's bodies, human beings' bodies are more sacred to me than the bodies of even the most thoughtful French pangolin. And I wanted to be amongst them again, my people, my family. So, yeah, it turns out the world is actually quite small, or it can be made very small in a moment. That was a very intrusive little pangolin, so haughty. But that's the French for you. You met the pangolin? I know you're still angry with me, which is why I went shopping this morning. Shopping? But nothing is open. So much is open. And I got you many things. For instance, a little piece of sky from over the house where we lived till you were four, when we moved in with Gong Gong and ate so much stir-fried tomato and eggs, I can never eat that dish again in my life. That was the only thing he knew how to make. He wouldn't make fish at home, not after spending the day surrounded by it. I got you a leaf from the tree on one side of your school, where you learned so much so thoroughly and exceptionally that you earned the top placement at graduation. And I got you a pebble from the other side of the school to indicate that I would have been just as proud if you hadn't got top placement. Okay, Mom. I got you a little bit of water from that running brook that used to be behind the ninth apartment building in our complex because you have always been running away from me. I have not liked it, and I've been sad, and I have missed you, and it has made me feel old and like my life is not so important or maybe coming slowly to a close. And so I haven't always behaved well. 
I'm not proud of it. But we don't always behave well when we feel forgotten or ill-considered. Also, I got you a pocket full of air from the harbor, where we used to go on early mornings with Gong Gong to get buckets of crawfish. Remember the red-faced man with the long red boat? How could I forget? The air smells like him. It practically shouts like him. Buy now, buy now, or good price will disappear. Poof. And also, it smells like your grandfather. This is some shopping trip you went on. And this, this I didn't find, but I made. A croissant? I've been practicing making pastries these past weeks. I made crullers. I made sweet buns. I made croissants. They never wanted to bend into the right shape. Very stubborn, these French pastries. Like bodies. You didn't really make this. Oh, but I did. So much butter. It's delicious. No wonder the French are all fat. The French aren't fat. Also, I have gotten for you this stall. What are you talking about? This is your stall. No, it's yours. Gong Gong wanted this. And so do I. What would I do with the fish stall? I'm no fishmonger. I can't stand the smell. Neither could he, for that matter. Terrible. So instead, we'll make a change. See? Here's a sign. I painted the words myself. Please forgive the handwriting. <laughs> Ben's patisserie. After he met him, Gong Gong said, Momo's friend, what a strong heart. What strong lungs and tummy and kidneys and skin, I can tell. And that's what we need now. Strong organs to play the music of the world. He's not just my friend, Mom. Oh, I know that. And now, as soon as he's able, he'll come back here and we will start again. With bread. A bakery. You will get fat like the very fat French. Mom. Fat and happy, Momo. Bring your Nigerian French baker back to Wuhan and tell him we want to be happy. I... We don't need to sell bodies anymore in this stall. I've been thinking we should just take care of our own and our breath while we have it. And our children who are little monsters, always on the verge of tearing out their parents' hearts. But when your heart is torn from your body, that's when you realize it was there in the first place. I didn't really think of my father as having a body until it failed him, you know? Until it undid him. And as soon as he was gone, I thought, I am next in line. And I don't want to spend my time in line waiting beside a fish stall that wants to be something else. You're not dying, Mom. Who knows anymore, really? Mom, you're not dying. Maybe not. But I've spent so much time alone, it feels as though I've already died. Sometimes. But then I think we are all alone in these little houses that are our bodies. Always in isolation. 
in this little house, it's keeping you alive. So consider it, your own body. You've never done that before. These legs, this neck, these hands, this heart. Give this body full consideration. And so I'm going to run. I mean, look at these clothes. I'm practically already a runner, practically already an Olympic medalist. What? Yes, yes, everyone is running now or cycling, trying to go past everyone else very quickly. And I think maybe if I run, I'll have time to see the world if I go now. You've never run, not once in your life. New things are happening. I need to run if I'm going to eat all those croissants and not get fat like the French. And I need to leave Wuhan. I've never left. I've only ever seen the banks of the Yangtze River. I want to see the Nile, the Mississippi, the Amazon, the mountains of Montana and the fjords of Sweden. Or is it Norway? And in the meantime, you and Ben will make a big world from this small stall, my Momo. No, don't go, Mama. Don't leave me. Oh, but it's time, my love. I'm Bobby Bermea, Director of Community Engagement at Profile Theater. Do you identify as LGBTQIA+. Do you want to cultivate your own creative voice and use writing as a springboard for conversation and fellowship? Check out Community Profile, an affinity space geared towards queer and HIV-positive people that offers community building through monthly writing workshops with award-winning writers and exceptional teachers. Due to COVID-19, we aren't meeting in person at this time, but we are meeting online and have found it to be a rich experience for participants. The program is 100% free and a lot of fun. You'll meet people like you, of all genders, ages, and backgrounds, who are also there to work on their craft, share their stories, and listen to yours, and together find a little bit of wisdom, support, and love. For more information, go to our website, profiletheater.org and click on the Community Profile tab, or email me at bobbyb at profiletheater.org and see why one recent participant called this program a life changer. I'm Josh Hecht, Artistic Director of Profile Theater. Joining me for a conversation on Claudia, a viral love story, the writers who contributed to this project, and Profile Theater's featured writer Paula Vogel, is theater scholar Daniel Pollock-Pelsner. Daniel is the Ronnie LaCroote Chair in Shakespeare Studies at Linfield College and writes frequently about contemporary theater for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times, among others. So, Daniel, this play was written by nine different writers, and they all have very different voices and different points of view as artists. Um, 
you know, and the project also asks them to uh, embrace characters that were written by the writer before them and place them in new circumstances, imagine new realities for them. One of the things that I think is so fascinating about what they've created is that while on the one hand, they refer to some rather big world events that we're all familiar with now, the closing of Wuhan, the closing of Tehran, etc. They've all focused on rather intimate um, relationships. A granddaughter worried about her family accepting her fiancé, a wife wanting uh, her distant husband to remember her body, a stolen moment between two men who are lovers. Why do you think so many of these writers focus on desire? or on the body, on intimate physical connections in this pandemic play. It is such an amazing thing about this love story, Josh, and I, I love that quality of it, that we have that globetrotting sort of James Bond hopping from one locale to the next. That's also, of course, the, the path of viral transmission in a global age. And then we can zoom in on these incredibly intimate moments. And I'm thinking of I'm thinking of Hader and Penelope breathing together at Mar-a-Lago after after she starts coughing and their their breaths get synchronized in this lovely moment that I felt my breath was lining up too as a as a listener to this mode. And it seems to me part of it is the medium of an audio drama that is such an intimate form, at least as I was binging all the episodes this morning on my walk through my earbuds, like these actors' voices, Amir and Penelope, as, as uh, Amir and Christie as Hader and Penelope, their sound vibrations are coming through the waves and you know, causing the little hair follicles on my eardrums to vibrate too, not to get too graphic for a family podcast here. Uh, and so I think that that intimacy between us as listeners and between the performers is kind of mirrored in the intimacy of the scenes. And then thinking about that, that the way that a viral love story would work, right? That it's both, that's a fantasy that, that we could all be connected in some positive way uh, that, you know, people are going to listen to this podcast and they'll tell their friends to listen to it and it will go viral and everybody will be listening to Profile's wonderful project and it'll lead to a, a spate of fabulous donations to the Cascade AIDS Project and Prism Health. But of course, this is also the nightmare of contagion in a pandemic is virality. And and that aching acuteness, we feel that it's through physical intimacy that viruses get transmitted. And so in the case of a respiratory uh, you know, virus like coronavirus, it's breath that's the medium of transmission. And so hearing, hearing those breaths and then hearing the coughs, the, uh, uh, Atusa's cough, say, at the end of Hillary's second, uh, well, I guess it's the, the end of Dan's scene, the third scene, when um, her husband is leaving, and we, we realize that intimacy that she's been longing for with her husband, say, could also be a way of fending off the mortality that she's facing or maybe even horrible to contemplate a kind of consequence of her cavalier attitude toward flus coming and flus going. And I think this is part of the DNA of the form of this piece as well. So and Paula Vogel describes this wonderful bake-off prompt which was to use these ingredients that she's given, a, a fishmonger in Wuhan, a cafe owner in Tehran, a talking pangolin. And then she also asked the playwrights to read uh, an early 20th century play called La Ronde, 
right by Arthur Schnitzler, who was a you know, really interesting kind of avant-garde Jewish writer in Vienna around the time of Freud, who wrote this play La Ronde that has the structure that we heard in Claudia. So it begins, it's a two-person scene, and then it goes to another two-person scene where the second character in scene one becomes the first character in scene two. And it's a play about uh, sexual transmission in, in the kind of demi-monde of Vienna at the turn of the century. So the first scene is a prostitute and a soldier, and then the second scene is a soldier and a chambermaid, and the third scene is, I can't remember, a chambermaid and a count, and it turns out that everybody in Vienna is connected through kind of illicit liaison, and it's a way of both showing how, I think, what our society deems as, as improper, say, or a moral behavior, immoral behavior actually seeps through every aspect of society through sex, and uh, uh, Paul Vogel's really interested in the way that sex is depicted in theater and ways that what we might consider obscene, say, um, masks bigger political, economic, social problems that are the true obscenities, the true sources of horror. So she's taking that structure that's sort of associated with both the, the spread of sexually transmitted diseases, but also the possibilities for intimacy across different social classes in Arthur Schnitzler's early 20th century Vienna, and asking these wonderful playwrights to try it out in... 21st century um, global culture. And so for these playwrights then to take that form of intimacy often between strangers or between husband and wife or between generations or lovers and think this is the thing that of course we are all missing right now. This is what we can't do is go up to a grandparent and give a hug or go up to a stranger and give a handshake uh, or maybe even you know cough too loudly next to the person beside us in the theater. And of course, this is what we're missing from the theater as well, that amazing sense of bodies in proximity in real time sharing a story. And so to have a, a work of, of audio drama that gives us those moments of breath, those moments of intimacy um, from a safe remove, as it were, seems to reflect on both that kind of longing for physical proximity and its, and its absence in the form in which we're experiencing it. Mm -hmm. You know, and as you say that, it makes me think that that moment between Penelope and Hader when, you know, she's just had a coughing fit and has collapsed. Um, uh -huh. And uh, he and she you can hear her shortness of breath and he calms her by breathing together. As you were describing that, I was thinking, right, and of course that act of breathing together is both soothing and also incredibly dangerous mm -hmm. in this moment. Um, and physical touch is both of those things throughout the play, throughout our lives right now, right? It's something we crave, it's something we need, but it's also something, it's the source of real danger. That's a beautiful way of, of putting it. And that, I think that's, that's sort of also part of the, the history of the, of the pandemic play. I mean, I'm thinking of that scene, say, in, in Angels in America, Millennium Approaches, where Lewis goes to the park uh, and wants to, to hook up with somebody to be infected, which is part of his, his guilt at, at uh, not wanting to care for his, his lover prior, but also wanting to just physically intensely feel this kind of self-destructive um, sense. And so that, that way in which longing for intimacy can be both a, a way of forming community and a way of destroying it. And I think you, you had pointed out to me earlier, Josh, that amazing line that Claudia the Pangolin has in, uh, I guess it's in Philip Dawkins' scene where she gets finally to do her slam poetry monologue. And then at the end says, for me, as a pangolin, to be desired 
is to die. It's because people want my scales for their medicine or their, their own uh, potency that I'm going to be killed. And for me not to, de- to be desired is to live. Uh, and that's, that's a, a kind of acute dynamic that this play asks us to consider. Right. And is certainly present in the history and present of any sexually transmitted disease, right? That one's desire is, is both, um, you know, the source of great pleasure and connection, even currency in different forms, and also potentially the source of illness, even death. Well, that's true. And I'm thinking of a play that you directed earlier uh, this year by, by Paula Vogel, the patron playwright of the Bake Off and of Profile of her play Baltimore Waltz about her brother, Carl, dying of AIDS in the, in the late 80s and her wish that she had gone on a European vacation that he'd invited her to and then couldn't, of course, after he died. But then the play expands on that fantasy that maybe she could have gone on that trip with him. And it's a trip that includes a lot of sexual adventure um, that, that, that seems a kind, I don't know if we, would we say that sex on stage in theater is a sort of form of safe sex, right? That you can indulge in that, in that, uh, space of imagination that is, um, that is a simulation, but that you're always aware of the, of the way that it, it's, it's bound up in that, in that peril or that possibility of viral transmission. And she, she includes another scene kind of like that in her play, The Long Christmas Ride Home that's a memory of her childhood with Carl and her other sibling um, that has uh, uh, sex puppets side by side simulating a sex act that would cause viral transmission and uh, and and she's she's aware of what that's meant for her brother but also of the of the longing for that kind of connection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Paula Vogel uh, you know, as you mentioned, we opened our season, our 2019-2020 season with Paula's play, The Baltimore Waltz, mm. which she wrote in the months right after her brother Carl died of AIDS. And Paula said recently in an interview I read in American theater, she said, and I quote, this is the second plague in my lifetime. When I was caretaking my brother Carl, who died of HIV, we didn't know how it was spread. So as a family, we came together and just realized that we'd grown complacent with the belief that science will save us. And then you reach this moment where HIV is spreading and you don't know how, and you know that you have a moral imperative to go into the room and nurse your brother. It brought me back not only to the Spanish flu, but to the early 20th century and the late 19th century when entire families were wiped out by typhoid or cholera. I think that what COVID is doing, Paula says, is getting all of us in touch with a hovering mortality that we always have, we just grow complacent. The good news about COVID versus HIV is that there was enormous shame, inaction, and a kind of shunning that I experienced that I don't think is happening with this disease. But I do think that it is going to make us much more aware of community and of the necessity to be kind. And the fact that when science fails us, and it will, kindness never will. Can you talk a little bit about plays and plagues and about how writers have responded to plagues from Shakespeare to HIV and now to COVID? Wow, that, yes, that, <laughs> there's so much that Paula, as always, gives us to, to mull on and live up to in that, that 
call to kindness and that call to care, which was, which was a brave act for her to care for her brother when she didn't know how this disease was transmitted. And um, she, she's a theater historian. She wrote her, her PhD on closet scenes in restoration drama, uh, really about gender and sexuality in the history of theater. And uh, her, her PhD committee at Cornell wouldn't accept it. And so she had to sort of strike out on her own. And she's really been creating spaces in the American theater for conversations about gender and sexuality and care and community ever since. And then and when you start to think about the history of plagues and plays, you realize it goes all the way back. Isn't this, this is the, as we say, the given circumstance of Oedipus Rex is that there's a plague in Thebes and we have to figure out why. And we know that in the Elizabethan era, plagues were constantly shutting down the theaters. So uh, Shakespeare's first company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, was a kind of reboot after uh, two previous uh, companies were, were wiped out because of the plague in uh, 1592, 1593. And Lord Chamberlain's Men and another company were the kind of remnants who were put back together. And then in the early 1600s under King James, the theaters were closed more often than they were open. Uh, it seems about you know, maybe six out of 10 years or so because of the belief that the plague was spread through bad air. Um, and this is before they, they knew that it was flea bites carried by rats and that in fact confining people into their houses would just spread the disease even further. And what you, what you see in, in a lot of Shakespeare's plays is not so much direct treatment of the plague except say in maybe in that, that scene in Romeo and Juliet where the friar can't get the message of Juliet's fake suicide to Romeo because he's been quarantined in a house with the plague. Uh, usually it, it pops up as an insult, a plague on both your houses, Mercutio says. Or, or, and this maybe ties back to our earlier conversation, Josh, as a fantasy of love. So when at the beginning of Twelfth Night, Orsino is fantasizing about Olivia and he says, the first time I saw her, me thought she did purge the air of pestilence. That she was so beautiful she could make the plague go away in that kind of bad air theory of it that um, we're seeing now actually coming to life when we know it is respiratory droplets that spread our current, our current plague. And what seems so, um, so moving about thinking about the, the, the AIDS plague, if we want to call it that, in a play like Baltimore Waltz or a play like Angels or a play like uh, Normal Heart that we've been thinking about with the passing of Larry Kramer, are the ways that plays could maybe help to stop a plague, that is by by destigmatizing an illness and by allowing us to feel a human connection to the lives of people who are suffering rather than excluding them from our view um, to the point that now, right, we know that you go to, when you could go to see a Broadway show, you would, you would see those red ribbons and you'd pass around a bucket and donate to Broadway Cares. And of course, to the fundraising that you're doing, Josh, with Profile, and I loved, I loved hearing um, uh, Francis's voice come on in between episodes, reminding us that you can donate to Cascade AIDS Project and, and Prism Health as a way, as a, as a way that um, theater creates communities, whether it's an in-person community or it's a, a virtual audio community like this one that you're fostering that can help people and that can change what Paula was describing as that sense of there are bodies that we can't consider, bodies that it would, it would 
kill us to be close to or to take seriously, and that theater could show us those bodies in all of their complexity, as, as Claudia asks us to do with all of the um, longing and hatred and rage and hurt that they feel, and recognize that those are bodies that are intimately connected to our own and that we need to care for too. Right, yes. You know, speaking of Claudia, the pangolin, in, uh, in Paula Vogel's original Bake Off ingredient list, um, she was, or they, since as Claudia points out, it's hard to sex a pangolin. Mm-hmm. Um, they are um, really intended only for one scene, Philip Dawkins' scene, um, uh, between Dan, the screenwriter, and, um, and Claudia the pangolin. Uh, and we added one more in sort of um, passing the pangolin on to Ellen Lewis's uh, scene with Ming Sha. But really, all of them, all of the writers were so taken with Claudia. And um, right from Hansel's, Hansel Jung, who wrote the very first scene, when she emailed me her pages, you know, we had told everyone to write two person scenes and no one else may appear in the scene Though you can refer to them. And Hansel said, I broke the rules and um, the pangolin appears, but she only has one line at the very end. Um, and all of the playwrights have really picked up on both that character and also that refrain that Hansel wrote and carried it all the way through the play. Why do you think the writers were so taken with Claudia? What do you think the potential is in this magical French-speaking pangolin? <laughs> I hope Pass the Pangolin is going to be the sequel to Claudia that you commissioned next, uh, Josh. What a, what a wonderful phrase and what a great metaphor for the way that these playwrights have responded. Of course, because Claudia Claudia breaks the rules. This is what, what Hansel realized in the first scene. Claudia breaks the, the constraint of the play. Claudia breaks the rules of naturalistic drama that we've inherited from Ibsen and Chekhov at the end of the 19th century and still has a kind of stranglehold on American regional theater that says what matters are middle class, often white, often male, people confessing their surus uh, on stage to each other. And Claudia um, Claudia breaks the rules of gender and of uh, what we might call anthropocentrism, that, that, that it's humans that we're focused on. Claudia is transnational. Claudia speaks French and Chinese. Claudia is a femme fatale that everybody who contacts, you know, comes in contact with might die, and yet it moves beyond that genre category of noir. And Claudia is obsess with everything that comes out of the body, which is, of course, that source of both intimacy and contagion that we've been talking about. And Claudia is the ultimate scapegoat, right? Claudia is the ultimate outsider in this play. We, we've blamed pangolins in our uh, global mythology of the coronavirus for some kind of original sin that, let, that, that broke the human species boundary and has led us all to suffer as a result. And uh, and I think this play asks us to think even more broadly, but with Claudia as a figure, who are we blaming for our problems? We blame Chinese um, people. We blame people from Iran. We blame um, forms of love and intimacy that are not considered normative. We blame um, relationships across racial lines. We blame working class people. We blame people who don't take the same precautions that we do. Um, and the easiest thing is to blame is people who can't talk back like pangolins. And so to have that 
that pangolin keep on erupting, keep on crawling out, keep on refusing to be cute or, um, or edible or disposable uh, is amazing. And then I sort of thought maybe Claudia would want to burn the fish market down along with Ming Sha in, in uh, E.M. Lewis's penultimate episode. But for Claudia then to say, give me the matches and start this story anew, seems like uh, uh, Claudia finally is an escape from the repetitive trap of the same kind of stories that we've been telling ourselves about disease, about uh, the economy, about politics, and that maybe Claudia offers us some way forward at the end. Oh, I love that. Um, Daniel, as you think about the ending of the play and where where Anna Ziegler leaves us with um, that scene between Momo and Ming Sha, what do you make of, um, of the, the possibility for new beginnings in that scene? I, I was honestly crying, Josh, as I listened to his ending and, and Mia and Barbie's beautiful performance of it, that it's an ending that's saying goodbye. When Momo's saying, no, don't leave me. And Misha says, oh, but it's, it's time, my love. And to end on the word love and to end on a goodbye just made me think how much in Paula's work and so many of her protege's work, a love story is an elegy. It's a story of loss. And we think of Baltimore Waltz really building to uh, Anna's, the point where Anna can say goodbye to her brother. Uh, and a way in which plays are, are always a way of saying goodbye. Um, and saying goodbye is an act of love. So Paula Vogel says every play she writes is a love letter to her brother Carl, who was supposed to be the writer in the family and who taught her how to write, taught her about camp, taught her about uh, desire and queer legacies in theater. And to have this be a play that's a love story in so many different ways, as you described, about family love, about love between spouses, between partners, between parents and children, across species, across racial lines, across national lines, but also a play of loss in which the first character we meet, Gong Gong, we learn is dead by the second scene that we get to. And we don't know what fate awaited Atusa's cough um, or her children in Bobak's nightmare. We don't really know what's going to happen to Penelope in detention, although she doesn't have much hope for her future. Claudia is going home, which means home to die at the end. And, and Mingxia's goodbye, whether or not she's going to die right now, seems to have a kind of elegiac farewell to it. And so to, to reach a place where Momo is in a sense released, but released with love and able to mourn her ancestors, her forebears, feels in some way, Josh, I, I, and I'll admit I'm thinking of my own grandma's Zoom memorial last month, about a way of, of honoring and saying goodbye to everybody that we've lost from COVID and from plagues of yore that we haven't been able to mourn because we haven't been able to be near their bodies or the bodies of our loved ones. And uh, Anna and this whole project gave us an ending that lets love live on even as we leave the bodies of the people that we love. Yes, I think that's such a hallmark of Anna Ziegler's work in particular. So many of her plays feel like they deal with 
a sense of nostalgia and of grief and of loss, um, but also a real tenderness and, and playfulness at the same time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it strikes me that um, at the heart of going back to form, at the heart of this play too is the challenge for all of these writers of staying true to their own voice, which is the thing that is um, unique to them and to their own artistic point of view, while also honoring this bake-off recipe that Paula created and also honoring um, these characters that they haven't created. And Anna, writing the last scene, neither of those characters were characters that she created, right? She inherited both of them. And so she has to write a scene that sounds like Ellen's version of Ming Shan, sounds like Hillary and Hansel's version of um, Momo, but also sounds like Anna Ziegler. Um, and I think she's really done that quite beautifully. Mm, I love that. And that's a, it's a great... It's one of Paula Vogel's teaching techniques is to say to her students, I think you're going down this road. Here are some of your ancestors who have gone down this road with you. Uh, and so for her, of course, in Indecent, it was finding Sholem Ash, a playwright who was writing a scene of beautiful love between two women a hundred years uh, earlier back in the shtetl. And her grad student advisor handed this to her and she read it standing up in the stacks and said, wow, I didn't know that I had an ancestor as a, a lesbian writer. Um, and Kiara Alegriahudis talks about uh, Paula Vogel giving her a copy of the uh, I think it's Michel Tremblay's Bonjour la Bonjour, a play about the silences within speech, and gave it to her. And then Chiara wrote Elliot, A Soldier's Fugue, that just unlocked this uh, poetic language within her. And so a sense in which all of these playwrights from Hansel through Anna that you've assembled have each other at their backs. They're writing in dialogue with each other and building on each other, and then also have Paula and Tony Kushner and Shakespeare and Sophocles and many other storytelling traditions as well in Farsi and in Mandarin and in Spanish and in uh, French too, that they uh, are summoning and are carrying on and are resurrecting on stage and then are also saying goodbye to is a, is a wonderful way of thinking about that intergenerational legacy that it seems like profile season is spotlighting as well. Right, yes. Well, Daniel, this has been so great and so great to talk with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Josh. What a treat. I think, I feel like Dan talking to Claudia, I've fallen in love uh, with Claudia, a love story, and now I want to go back and listen to it again. Daniel Pollock-Pelsner is the Ronnie LaCroute Chair in Shakespeare Studies at Linfield College. Most recently, he's written about plays and plagues for The Atlantic, about Lorraine Hansberry for The New York Times, and about Taylor Mack Chiara Alegria Hudes and Paula Vogel for The New Yorker. I'm Josh Hecht, Artistic Director at Profile Theatre. Our new platform, Profile Theatre On Air, will contain audio plays, community stories, and interviews like these. Our 2020-2021 season of plays by Tony nominee Paula Vogel, her former student, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner Lynn Nottage, and MacArthur Genius grantee Brandon Jacobs Jenkins will be announced this summer. Go to ProfileTheater.org to tune in. My name is Paula Vogel, and I am honored to be one of the featured writers of Profile Theater in 2019-2020. 
Uh, I'm speaking to you from my home in Wellfleet, Massachusetts, where we too are experiencing COVID-19. I am thrilled and honored that this group of remarkable playwrights have gathered together to write my COVID-19 Bake Off. I want to say how meaningful it is to me that the Profile Theater's Bake Off will support the Cascade AIDS Center and the PRISM Health Center. As the writer of Baltimore Waltz, written quickly in the aftermath of my brother's death from HIV, I believe we must continue to support people who struggle with HIV while we attend to those who struggle with COVID. I hope you all have fun. My thanks. I'm Francis Jew. Thank you for listening to episode five of Claudia, A Viral Love Story. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has only exacerbated health and mental health issues for many in our community, especially for those disproportionately impacted, including communities of color and people living with HIV AIDS. Founded by Cascade AIDS Project in 2017, PRISM Health offers a safe, affirming, and non-judgmental space where the LGBTQ community and beyond can obtain the compassionate and culturally effective health care they need and deserve. That's why we're raising money for PRISM Health during this urgent crisis. Together, we can make a difference. Go to profiletheater.org slash Claudia and click donate to make a gift to PRISM Health today. Thank you for listening to Claudia, a viral love story. This episode was written by Anna Ziegler and was directed by Josh Hecht. The character of Ming Sha was played by Mia Katikbach, and Momo was played by Barbie Wu. Thal Landrum read the opening narration. The sound designer, an original music composer, was Matt Weens. The sound engineer was Robert A.K. Gainio. Jamie M. Ray was the line producer, and Maya Bourgeois was the stage manager. Claudia, a viral love story, is dedicated to Paula Vogel and her brother Carl, who died of AIDS in the late 1980s. In honor of Carl's memory, we're raising funds for Prism Health, a program of Cascade AIDS Project. Donate and listen to future episodes at profiletheater.org slash Claudia.